Hello, it's Wednesday, the 2nd of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. North Korea has fired a missile south of the de facto maritime border for the first time since the division of the two Koreas. It was one of at least 10 missiles of various types that was launched on Wednesday. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Later in a special in-depth, we'll speak to an expert in crowd science to once again look back at the Itaewon crowd crush tragedy and discuss how to ensure safety in crowds. And we'll also speak to a representative from Save the Children Korea to talk about the challenges facing refugees and child refugees here in Korea. Let's begin Korea 24. A missile launched by North Korea flew south of the de facto maritime border for the first time since the Korean War. This prompted South Korean President Yoon sang yeol to dub the latest provocation a territorial infringement and vowed a stern response. Our KBS World Radio news editor Koo Hee-jin joins us on the line now to brief us on the escalating saber-rattling, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, chang North Korea had in some ways foreshadowed its latest provocation as it earlier issued a statement warning that South Korea and the United States could pay the most horrible price in history for their ongoing large-scale military drills. First, can you give us the details of the latest launches? Of course. According to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the North fired three short-range ballistic missiles towards the East Sea from Wonsan, Kangwon province, at around 8.50 a.m. on Wednesday. One of these fell into the open waters 26 kilometers south of the northern limit line, the point of impact a mere 22 kilometers from South Korean waters and 167 kilometers northwest from South Korea's Ulung Island. The JCS said Pyongyang fired a total of at least 10 missiles of various types towards the East and West Sea on Wednesday, with no violations detected on the Western Corridor. The North then followed up with 100 additional artillery shells pounding the buffer zone to the East at 1.27 p.m., Park Jong-chan, secretary of the Central Committee of the North's ruling Workers' Party, had earlier issued a statement warning that South Korea and the U.S. could pay the most horrible price in history for their ongoing large-scale military drills. Park said in his statement carried by the North Korea's official Korean Central News Agency, uh, that the vigilant storm air drills between Seoul and Washington were aggressive and provocative military exercises aimed against Pyongyang. And as we mentioned earlier, President Yoon warned of a stern response to North Korea's latest provocation. Can you tell us about his remarks as well as the South's countermeasures? Well, uh, the all-too-close missile strike triggered the air raid alarm on Ulung Island. President Yoon Suk-yeol convened an emergency session of the National Security Council where he said the NLL encroachment was effectively a territorial infringement and ordered a stern response to the violation of the two Koreas' tension-diffusing 2018 military agreement. The Joint Chiefs of Staff also earlier pledged a stern response, saying it cannot tolerate such actions by the North. 
hours later, South Korea scrambled F-15K and KF-16 warplanes and fired three precision strike air-to-surface standoff land attack missile expanded response or SLAM-ER missiles into the high seas north of the NLL. The JCS said uh, South's missiles landed north of the NLL, almost equidistant to that of the North missile that dropped south of the Mar- maritime line. The air raid alert on Ulung Island was lifted as of 2 p.m. And South Korea and the U.S. discussed the latest provocation and vowed a stronger alliance to counter the North's escalating aggression. Heejin? Of course, uh, South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken talked over the phone and condemned the latest launches, defining them as an unprecedented and grave military provocation. In the call, the two sides agreed to maintain a steadfast readiness posture, sternly uh, prepare for future provocations and continue to jointly counter the North's missile and nuclear threats. Park and Blinken also deplored the fact that the provocations come during a period of national mourning in South Korea following a fatal crowd crush in Seoul over the weekend. North Korea has fired more than 40 ballistic missiles this year, the largest in any given year since the end of the conflict in 1953, after North Korean leader Kim Jong-un proclaimed development plans for numerous delivery vehicles for strategic and tactical nuclear warheads. Okay, let's turn to other headlines now. As Blinken mentioned, North Korea's missiles came as the nation still tries to come to grips with the tragic deaths of more than 150 people in the crowd crush in Itaewon. On Wednesday, a special police investigation team raided the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency, the Yongsan Police Agency, the Yongsan District Office and five other locations as part of an investigation into the deficient police response leading up to the disaster. Can you update us on this situation? Well, investigators stormed the targeted offices at 2 p.m. on Wednesday to secure documents related to Halloween patrol plans and emergency calls that came in on the day of the accident from the public, uh, expressing concern over a lack of crowd control in Itaewon during the festivities, marking the first official investigation related to the fatal crush. Um, investigators will uh, try, are trying to ascertain uh, whether the dispatchers who took the 11 uh, concerned calls prior to the tragedy on Saturday had fulfilled their duties and review responses taken by senior office, officials as a follow-up. The transcripts of the 11 112 phone calls uh, released by the National Police Agency on Tuesday indicate that the police failed to take proper measures, such as increasing the number of of officers on site, despite warnings by citizens specifically about the swelling crowds and safety concerns. Uh, Records show that officers were dispatched to only four of the 11 calls before the police resorted to telling callers that police were already present. Telephone transcripts uh, released on Tuesday are fueling public outrage, raising the question on whether the inadequate response by the police exacerbated the tragedy. 
Meanwhile, the National Police Agency dismissed the head of the Yongsan Police Station, Lee Imje, over the bungled police response. Lee Jin, can you, send, uh, can you tell us more about the dismissal? And I understand the government has also pledged to reform its emergency response system as well. Yes, um, the agency removed E from his post and placed him on forced leave of absence, saying that he cannot uh, carry out his normal duties given the current conditions. This is effectively a dismissal in Korea's police hierarchy. The Yongsan District Police Station, which oversees the Itaewon area, has come under fire for falling to place crowd control measures even after receiving the concerned calls from the public. Um, senior Interior Ministry official Park Jong-hyun said the government plans to put forth a comprehensive overhaul of the nation's uh, emergency response system once an ongoing investigation into the cause of the Itaewon tragedy is complete. The tragedy resulted in 156 lives lost, including 26 foreigners, most of them young adults in their 20s. 157 others were injured. And finally, we turn to an economic headline. Consumer prices rose nearly 6% on year in October, climbing from the previous month. Can you break down the figures for us? Yes, according to the Statistics Korea on Wednesday, the country's consumer price index stood at 109.21 in October, up 5.7% from a year earlier. Consumer prices had steadily risen from 3.6% in January to 6.3% in July before dipping to 5.7% in August, then to 5.6% in September, but bounced back in October. The price is led by price hikes in electricity, gas prices and uh, industrial uh, products, with prices of electricity and gas jumping 23.1%, the largest gain since January 2010. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. It's been four days since more than 150 young people lost their lives in a crowd crush incident in Itaewon's hole. And while investigations continue on how the situation arose, today we thought we'd connect with a crowd safety expert for another special in-depth to better understand the science behind crowds, how to spot dangerous situations and learn what can be done to ensure one's safety in a crowd. Professor John Dury from the University of Sussex joins us on the line now. Professor, thank you for joining us today. Hello, good morning. So it's been a few days since the incident, and Professor, I'm sure you've been following the developments. Uh, What have you made of what happened? Has there been anything in particular that stood out for you? Yes, well, some of the features of the event are similar to um, other crowd crushings we've seen in the past. And the most obvious thing is the density of the crowd. Too many people in the same space. And by too many, I mean anything above four or five people per square metre. And that is objectively dangerous. And when you're in a a crowd that dense, it's possible that any 
movement of a large number of people in that crowd as they try to move through the crowd or, or get out of the crowd can create a wave that ripples through the crowd and can cause pressure on other people in the crowd and even break people's ribs. Now, in addition to that, it was uh, it, it's noticeable that it's a, a narrow alleyway with walls on each side, and that's similar to, in some ways, the um, features of the Love Parade disaster in 2010 in Germany, where people were walled in on each side, and you could see people clambering, trying to climb the walls to get out. So when you've got an obstruction like that, and you've got people uh, still trying to enter the, enter the area from each end of the alleyway, um, that pressure builds up. And the final feature, and I think this has been confirmed too, at least by the reports I've seen, is when there is a crowd collapse, which is when uh, a number of people fall over. And when that happens, um, the people around them simply fall on top, and uh, it's impossible to stop that for those around them. They can't, you can't really extricate yourself or others. Uh, and that, too, uh, leads to fatalities. So all of these features um, seem to have been present, and these are all features associated with fatal crowd mm. disasters. Right. So then how do crowds work under normal circumstances? And then what makes the crowd to not flow as usual and lead to a possible accident? Uh, is density the key issue? Well, density is the key issue, but I think we need to make a distinction bet between what people in the crowd are able to do and what they know and the, and the responsibility and knowledge mm. of those managing the event or managing the location because people within a crowd are at a disadvantage in that they have no idea how dense it is at other areas in the crowd. They don't know how many people are in the area. They don't know what safe uh, density is. And I was reminded, again, of another disaster, the, the Hillsborough disaster we had in the UK in 1989, when people were directed by police into an already overcrowded standing area. And it was on a slope, rather like um, we've seen a few days ago. And as people walked into this crowded area, they had no idea that people were being crushed to death at the front. <clears throat> so these issues, first of all, what is the capacity of the area? That should be known. Secondly, how many people are coming into the area and leaving? That count. Mm. And thirdly, the regulation of those people based on that capacity and that count. And those uh, are the responsibility, not of crowd members themselves who can't know all this, but of those uh, responsible for the space, either responsible for the event or responsible for that space. Mm. Uh, there was another factor uh, that was been talked about it's one factor where uh, there seem to be people trying to head in different directions down that narrow alleyway as well. And there's been suggestion that if the crowd had been going in a single direction, if, say, police had come and made people only move in one direction, uh, such a tragedy would likely have preve pre been prevented uh, as there would have been better movement. Would you agree as well? Well, that, yeah, that's a reasonable suggestion because, um, and just think of a, an example, I mean, every year the Hajj uh, pilgrimage takes place in and around Mecca, and one of the most crowded areas is at the Holy Mosque where people circumambulate the Kaaba. So the Kaaba is the holiest site in Islam. Everyone wants to get close to it. Two million people attend the Hajj each year, 
and the density of the crowd varies between four to nine people per square meter. So obviously these are un objectively unsafe measures. And although, you know, people, many people outside of Saudi Arabia know about the harsh through disasters, in fact, disasters are very rare there. I mean, these, densi these crowd densities are routine, right, without disaster. Now, how mm. does that happen? Well, one of the ways is people um, have a, um, a routine or a normative direction. And if you look at people circumambulating the Kaaba, they're all going in the same direction. And they have to do that seven times as part of a, of a ritual. So there is a kind of shared understanding about uh, uh, you know, how, how we move together in time. And, and certainly, um, just bringing to mind another disaster, uh, at, actually at the Hajj in 2015, and it wasn't, it wasn't at the Holy Mosque, it was on the way to Jamarat Bridge, where 7,000 people or more died. And here, the hypothesis was it was because two crowds going in opposite directions. And it's interesting because people sometimes use the term stampede to talk about these things, but it's clear, you know, in, in the present case and in the case in 2015, people mm. are not running. Um, as you say, they are walking, and walking, but walking in opposite directions, and they're trying to get through each other, but when they find it's too crowded, they can't go back. They can't mm. go back because they've got hundreds, if, if not thousands, of people behind them. Uh, and as they try to move to get away, uh, the, the density increases further. So, yeah, I agree that it's, it's you know, people coming in different directions. And I understand this was a, a shopping and a nightclub area where people were coming out of cafes, coming into the, coming into the alleyway from different directions um, in, in a high-density crowd. Then, you know, that, that is a very dangerous situation. Uh, let's perhaps look at this topic another way as well. How do we then ensure the safety of people in crowded areas? What measures need to be in place? Uh, we've talked about uh, perhaps having one-way uh, alleyways, one-way roads. Uh, for example, say we know a large people are, are say we know a large number of people are expected to gather in a specific place. How do we prepare for that? Yes. Well, I've already talked about. I think these are the most important things: knowing the capacity of the location, um, having somebody count people in, count them out, and then regulate too. So prevent people above that capacity from coming into the area. And, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist, actually. I'm, I'm not a crowd safety manager. Uh, I'm a psychologist. And so I specialise in the psychological dimensions. And I think these are important too. Um, and one of the features of um, crowd events like celebrations, like concerts, like religious pilgrimages, that make them different from, say, for example, a crowd at a transport hub, is that in these celebrations and so on, people actually desire to be together. Um, so all those normal considerations of personal space are dropped as people enjoy close proximity. They actually seek it out because that provides atmosphere. So, so my um, recommendation to organisers is that they need to be aware of that because what that means is, and I gave you the harsh example of the very high densities there, people will enjoy and endure densities that are objectively dangerous, mm. right? So that means that the organisers have a responsibility to be aware of that and therefore to manage it. And the second thing is um, in terms of these de um, of desired locations. So for any crowd at any event and any location, there will be areas, physical spaces, that are particularly desirable. Now, I, uh, I guess that 
The alleyway uh, in question was a particularly desirable area for young people. And, you know, if you know the culture, you know the history of the Halloween celebrations, you would be aware of that. You might, not, you might say that the crowd was exceptionally large, but you would still have some idea of the most desirable locations. Mm. Every organiser, every event organiser knows the most desirable locations. And so, therefore... These are the areas where it's even more important than ever to, to regulate. And the third recommendation relates to all of this because the organisers or the people in charge of the location need to communicate. They need to communicate before uh, the crowd events and they need to communicate on the day. I mean, to give you an example, in the UK every year we have a very popular New Year's Eve uh, event uh, in London, in central London, the fireworks and so on. And every year before the event, the authorities say, please don't come into London, right? So it's already going to be very crowded. Please do not come. And they organise um, viewing locations away from the most uh, popular areas. So they know the popular areas and they try to dissuade people from coming to them. And they also regulate the most um, uh, popular areas. And so they'll communicate beforehand and they will communicate on the day by having personnel who are present who will explain to people why the space is being regulated because I think if people understand that you know there is a capacity that it's reaching capacity they will uh, they will not persist in trying to get into that area they'll understand that it could be dangerous um, you know these things just need to be explained a little take a little bit of time employ the staff to communicate in that example of the fireworks in the UK, it's the police then who are taking charge. One of the issues that has been raised about the incident in Itaewon is the fact that there was no central organisers. Uh, there was no one who was um, taking charge of the Halloween festivities in Itaewon. Yeah, I, I heard that and I understand the point. Nevertheless, it is a public space and I assume like all public spaces... In any city, the local authority will have responsibility for regulating that space and for anticipating uh, problems um, and doing some kind of risk assessment. I mean, this is what happens here. I and, mean, of course, people come into public spaces all the time and the police and the local authority are aware of um, when that's going to happen and they'll put something in place for that. Um, as for the police, yeah, I've heard the numbers. The numbers sound, don't sound sufficient. I heard less than 200 officers, and I heard also the police were kind of taking responsibility for their failings. But it's not simply the police. I mean, any um, uh, crowd event, any large crowd event in public space, there will also be a very large number of stewards, um, maybe volunteers, crowd safety personnel who are not police, who specialise in crowd safety. You know, we recently had a very large crowd event in the UK for the lying in state and the funeral of the Queen. I mean, that was enormous, enormous queue. And most of the staff who were interacting with the public and, and, and answering their questions, as well as giving them information, were not police. They were volunteers. They were stewards. Um, but there were a very large number of them who were brought in for that, for that purpose. So, uh, and that is a standard thing. So, you know, two points. The first point is someone is actually responsible for that, that space, even if there's no event organiser. And secondly, 
um, that person responsible, that body responsible, should also manage risk by having a, a large number of personnel on the ground to communicate and to manage uh, the space. Finally, let's end with some perhaps advice you can give us if we do find ourselves in a crowd and we do start to feel that perhaps it's getting overly crowded. Uh, let's begin with what can be done before actually we get to the space where it's too crowded. For example, how do we spot a dangerous situation? What signs do we need to look out for? Uh, well, um, I would say it is partly knowing something about that space and knowing something about the history of that location. I mean, in the UK, in the, you know, we have a history of, of, of crowd disasters and people know um, some of the events that are going to be crowded. But again, I, I think the problem with the question, really, and, and the concern I have about it, is it's putting a bit too much responsibility on the public. Mm. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think the public can't really be held re responsible uh, once they get into a, a location. Very often, they, are, they trust the authorities to look after them. Okay, so you know, when they're going to a space and they're allowed into that space, even though it's crowded, they're making the assumption, which actually might be wrong, that it's safe because the authorities are letting them do it. So I think, you know, in a way, we need to turn that question around and say, well, what are the authorities doing to, to manage risk? Because people don't understand how dangerous density is. That's the first thing. Second thing is they gravitate towards density when they're in a crowd of like-minded people because that's where the atmosphere is. So taking all that into account, somebody else needs to take responsibility rather than you know, the individual taking responsibility. And finally, there was also uh, reportedly another incident just an hour or so before that deadly incident in the same alleyway where people were getting crushed. But uh, someone successfully took charge and told people to tell each other in, a, in the crowd to go back. So there was this sort of wave of people telling each other to move back and respond, and that was said to have helped relieve the situation. Is that something uh, you think could work, uh, Professor, a sort of Chinese whispers tactic? Yeah, it can work, and you've, you've seen spontaneous self-organisation in other types of crowds. You see it in protest crowds, you see it in emergencies, uh, and so it is a feature of people that share a social identity with each other, find it easy to cooperate, uh, they, they, um, they assume that others will, will listen to them and they listen to others so they can work together as a group and act as a unit, um, but they shouldn't have to do that. And actually it's sure. very difficult. I mean, if you look at disasters like Hillsborough, like the Who concert crush in 1979, so what happened there was people in the crowd tried to help each other they tried to extricate each other from the crowd so they did their best for the you know for in the in the way that you described trying to cooperate but it was extremely limited because they were physically uh physically compressed so this does happen but we can't rely on it so ultimately it's not those uh, in the crowd uh, that should be responsible and are responsible and you can do anything uh, essentially saying yeah. there okay yeah. We'll leave it there. We're speaking to Professor John Jury from the University of Sussex. Thank you for uh, your advice and walking us uh, through it all as well. OK, thanks very much, then. The 2022 Jeju Human Rights Forum 
organised by the Jeju Peace Human Rights Institute, called WHAT, was held last Thursday and Friday. A host of topics related to discrimination and prejudice were discussed, including concerns over the Korean public's apprehension and misunderstanding of refugees. For this in-depth today, we have joining us in the studio one of the speakers at the forum who spoke on the issue of refugees, and specifically child refugees. We have with us today Yi Min, Assistant Manager for Domestic Programs at Save the Children Korea. Ms. E, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. Can you first tell us a little bit about what we mean when we say refugees? Who are the refugees and how do they find themselves in such a situation where they need refuge in another country? So um, technically, refugees are defined and protected by 1951 Refugee Convention, which is international law. And it states that the refugees are someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. But Mm. I think this definition is a little strict. (laughs) So um, let me refer to a simpler version of what could be the refugees. Sure. Um, Refugees are people who have fled war, violence, conflict or persecution and have crossed an international border to find safety in another country. I think that would be a simpler way to describe who they are. Sure. And in most cases, they're fleeing from devastating situations and certainly not out of choice. Uh, How many refugees are currently living in South Korea uh, and where do these refugees come from? Um. According to the recent statistics, the accumulated number of refugees who had arrived and seeked asylum in South Korea from the year 1994, when Korea decided to put the Refugee Convention into effect, to July this year would be a little more than 78K. The exact number of refugees living right now may be a little difficult to find out, as there may be a number of refugees who are rejected after going through all the procedures and are living as undocumented immigrants or have left the country. Right, okay. But I can tell you that um, the top five countries where the refugees came from have been China, Kazakhstan, Russia, Pakistan, and Egypt. They They tend to seek asylum based on religious and or political persecution. Interesting. Okay. And do we know also how many refugees are children as well? What percentage, perhaps? Um, I think that there were around like 4,000 people who have applied asylum as refugee children. And out of them, like about 2,000 people were recognized as the recognized refugee. So it's it's not that many. (laughs) Okay, okay. So for uh, many refugees, part of the journey to become a refugee is finding your way to the country that you want to get to. Once you're there, though, then it's about being recognised by that country as a refugee. Uh, So say a refugee finds their way to Korea, what happens next? How are they evaluated and what does that process look like? Um, In fact, it's extremely difficult to go through all the procedures like for any asylum seekers to be recognised in South Korea. Mm. So the first step is, of course, to apply for the uh, refugee status. But the majority of the people do not really make it on the first round. So they may have to go through the appeal process, Mm. which also does not have a lot of people going going as granted. So after like that process, like at the immigration office will take about a year more or less. And then they may have to even go to the court to tell the minister of justice that their refusal should be uh, cancelled. So the procedures that the court will take from three to five years, which means 
it's a very long and complicated procedures and a lot of people may suffer because it just goes on and on and on sure um to tell you a little bit about the statistics um the refugee recognition rate this year has been very low which is 1.59 percent if we add the humanitarian status holders that will be still less than five percent so it's not at all high so why is it so low uh, why is it so difficult in south korea do you think for uh, refugees to get that refugee status Oh, good question, actually. Um, I think that it would be somewhat difficult for Korean government and even Korean public to accept the concept of welcoming refugees Mm. to Korea yet. And um, I think that the procedure may require a lot of details about, like, what exactly happened, when was the time and date, like, etc. And, like, if someone goes through a traumatic event, sometimes it's difficult to really think through every single details, right? Sure. And once once that was not well applied, like during the procedures, then maybe they would they may be considered as somebody who's lying, somebody who's not consistently talking about their stories. So there's a misunderstanding, unfortunately. Sure, as you said, unfortunately there are concerns and prejudices about refugees. They fear Uh, Some people fear that it will lead to increased crime or economic burden. And they also even doubt whether they truly are refugees or just someone from a a country looking to uh, make money here in Korea. How would you describe the public perception of refugees in South Korea? Well, to be honest, people were somewhat indifferent to the issue, like because we're all busy, like living our own lives. Mm. But then... Things changed a lot when there were Yemeni, Yemeni refugees like coming to Jeju Island in May, June 2018. And that's when a lot of people were opposing the idea of welcoming the refugees. It was actually quite a surprise when more than 700,000 people signed the petition saying, like, we don't want them. Like, we do not want the refugees to come to Korea. Like, I know that some people were afraid because they had Muslim background or some other people were afraid because they thought that because the majority of Yemeni refugees who had came to who had come to Korea were men so mm. they thought that they would be somewhat harmful to women in Korea i mean like all those like misunderstandings like stirred up like a huge like polemics here and i remember that at that time when you go out to Gwangwon Square then there will be two types of protests happening at the same time <laughs> on one side welcoming the refugees and on the other side like going completely against the idea so like i mean they did uh, receive humanitarian status in october 2018 however the term refugee kept having the bad name like bad context with it since then and i think that the recent entry of afghan people also reflected that like the government the korean government specifically chose the word special contributors instead of refugees Mm. and i think it's somewhat avoided like the strong opposition from the public by using the term, but I think the term could also cause some confusion. So within Save the Children, like when we were supporting refugee children and refugee families as part of our projects, we we think that it's politically more correct to use the term refugees than special sure. contributors. You don't shy away from it, essentially. Mm. Uh, so there is this trepidation towards refugee, refugees from some quarters of Korean society. Uh, with that in mind, then, how uh, are the refugees coping with living here, those who have uh, gained that status? What are uh, some of the difficulties they face uh, when they arrive? 
Well, like I mentioned earlier, the, the recognition rate is extremely low. That is, the majority of the refugees living in Korea may have a very unstable visa status or the, like, the resident status. Um, the visa G1 is well known, also known as miscellaneous visa. And that visa is known for not being able to do anything, like, especially like being able to find jobs. Mm. And like, even, like, even when asylum seekers and humanitarian status are technically uh, permitted to work, like not a lot of people know about it. So it is very hard for them to basically afford life. And on the other hand, um, if you think about the refugee children, like there are two types. Like one type would be those who are coming with their parents after they were born in the country of origin. Mm. And the other would be those who are born in Korea. The problem is like the second type, like the children who are born in South Korea, they cannot register themselves anywhere. I mean, it is impossible for them to go to the embassy like of the country that they were persecuted. Right. But right. it's also not possible to visit the district office like in South Korea to register themselves because they are foreign children. So that causes a lot of problems for the refugee children here in Korea. Like they may have difficult times finding schools. I mean, they eventually get in because maybe the school principal may allow it, but they may have to face more hardships because the services and the treatment for, you know, Korean children may not be available for those kids. So a very complex situation, especially for children then. Uh, so then perhaps what is your organization, Save the Children, doing uh, to help refugee children living in Korea? Uh, what kind of things are you working with? working on so as an international ngo also also working towards the issues in korea um we try to provide different types of expenses that the government services may not be able to cover for example uh, we provide child rearing expenses for those younger than 18 months like for example they may need some financial support for purchasing diapers, family formula, etc. Mm. And for those um, who are under the age of seven in Korean age, I mean, aka for preschoolers, um, they may need child care costs so that they could go to kindergarten and start receiving basic education. So we cover that cost as well. And from time to time, there are children who may be sick. And that's when we try to cover the medical costs. There are like certain limitations, like but we try our best to be able to help every single children that we could. Mm. Um, on the other hand, it's also important to look at the parents. Like it's very important to look at each family when you are thinking about supporting refugee children. So this year we are trying as a pilot project, like with parents' education, so that the refugee parents in Korea would have a better understanding of raising children in South Korea and also how to form a positive, warm relationship with the child. We're almost out of time, but uh, is there any final message you would like to perhaps tell our listeners about refugees in Korea for uh, anyone in Korea who might be concerned about their presence here or for uh, any of our international listeners as well? Do you have a final message? One thing that my organization, Save the Children, has been trying to emphasize is that like, there are two labels, refugee and children. I mean, both of them are very important. But what we would like to tell the audience, the public, would be refugee children are also children. And I think that it, it is widely known that children are the future of our generation. Children are the ones who need fundamental rights. 
So I would, I would call for like shifting the idea from looking at them as like refugees, foreigners, or mm. somebody unknown into children, like those people who are living together in Korean society, maybe the future generation, like future generation who will be walking together with Korean children. With that message, we'll wrap up our in-depth there. Uh, we've been speaking to Lee Yoo-min from the Save the Children Korea. Thank you once again for coming in and t- sharing, uh, telling us about your story. Thank you very much for inviting me. Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 1.65 points, or 0.07% on Wednesday, closing the day at 2,336.87. The tech-heavy Kosdaq fell, however, losing 2.68 points, or 0.38%, closing the day at 697.37. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.21 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,417.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, where we take a look at some of the other news stories that have been trending online in Korea. And for that, we have with us once again, Walter Lee. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's great to be here again. Yes. In fact, we're seeing you every day for a little while, I yes. believe. It's uh, always great to have you with us. Thank you very much. OK, so what topics do you have for us today? OK, so first we'll discuss the government's plan to assist the families of the foreign victims who lost their lives in the Itaewon crowd crush. We'll also find out about a new plastic bag ban that will be applied from the end of this month. And finally, we'll talk about health authorities urging caution amid a rise in dengue fever causes, or cases, sorry, among people who recently visited Southeast Asia. Okay, so our first story is once again related to the Itaewon crowd crush incident, more specifically related to the foreign victims of the tragedy. Can you tell us more? Yes, so the South Korean government has announced that it will offer 20 million won in relief assistance and 15 million won in funeral expenses to foreigners who were killed in the Itaewon crowd crush. That's around 14,000 and 10,000 US dollars, respectively. So a foreign ministry official said Tuesday that the government reached the decision during a meeting of related government agencies early that day. Now, the amount of support is the same as what will be provided for Korean victims. One ministry official has assigned to each victim to provide support to their families. Can you remind us how many foreigners lost their lives in the tragic incident? Okay, so a total of 26 from 14 countries. So they include five from Iran, four from both China and Russia, and two each from the US and Japan. Now, Australia, Austria, France and Kazakhstan all had one fatality, as well as Norway, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Uzbekistan and Vietnam. What kind of costs would the funeral expenses be covering? Fees to transport the victims' remains back to their homeland, as well as accommodation fees for bereaved families who enter South Korea for funeral arrangements. The ministry official said that around four bereaved family members of foreign victims have arrived in the country, with more set to enter next week. Now, the applications for relief funds and funeral expenses must be submitted by the end of the week. 
Yes, our thoughts go out to those families. Uh, what about those who suffered injuries? Uh, will they be getting any support, such as uh, treatment costs? So the foreign ministry is said to be consulting with related government agencies on ways to provide financial support to injured foreigners from a humanitarian perspective. Yes, hopefully the relief funds can ease some of the stress that families are going through uh, at this very difficult time. Mm. Let's move on to our next story for now. Uh, what do you have for us? Yeah, so starting from the end of this month, the use of plastic bags will be banned in cafes and convenience stores. Now, the Ministry of Environment announced on Tuesday that the use of disposable goods will be further restricted as plastic bags will officially be prohibited in the said establishments from November 24th. Okay, plastic bags, they're already prohibited in large supermarkets, right? Yeah, that's right. So under the revised restriction, the ban will expand from huge retail chains and supermarkets larger than 165 square metres to convenience stores, supermarkets and bakeries measuring over 33 square metres. Also, starting from the end of this month, paper cups and plastic straws will disappear from all food service establishments, including restaurants and cafes. I see. So no paper cups and plastic straws uh, in restaurants as well. Uh, going back to the plastic bags, this is going to be quite a change as... Uh, Convenience stores and such establishments have been using them for the longest time, really. Right. So that's why the ministry will implement a one-year grace period for the new measures. A ministry official said a step-by-step -step approach is needed for the new rules to yield substantial results in reducing waste while minimizing confusion and inconvenience. Now, violators could face fines of up to $3 million won, which is around $2,000. The penalty, however, will not be imposed during the year-long grace period. I see. So uh, how has the government's decision been received by environmental groups? Well, they have blasted the one-year grace period as yet another policy retreat. So the groups have already uh, are already angry that the government further scaled back its planned uh, deposit refund scheme for disposable cups. The policy will be only implemented in the central administrative city of Sejong and the southernmost island of Jeju in early December, which is about six months later than the initial June start date. An alliance of of such groups denounced the government's decision in a statement saying regulating the use of disposable goods is the first and foremost thing the government needs to do to meet its 20% reduction of plastic waste goal by 2025. Yes, perhaps we aren't moving fast enough, but at least it is a step in a positive direction. Hopefully the establishments uh, will adopt the change quickly to remove plastic bags, even without the threat of a fine. Let's move on to our final story for today now. Uh, what else has been trending? Okay, so health authorities have urged caution as cases of the mosquito-borne tropical disease dengue fever are rising among people who recently visited Southeast Asia. The Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency, or KDCA, said Tuesday that the number of people who entered South Korea infected with dengue between January and October 31st this year reached a total of 59. It's quite a surge compared to last year's total when the number of cases stood at merely three as overseas trips had been strictly restricted due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sure. Okay. So what are the symptoms of dengue fever? Okay. So a headache, chills, a rash and muscular pain. Now, such symptoms occur after an incubation period of between 3 and 14 days. If not properly treated, dengue fever has a mortality rate of 20%. It's a tropical disease that is carried by specific types of mosquitoes. It in mainly occurs in Southeast Asian and Latin American countries, such as the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, Brazil and Mexico. 
some mortality rate of 20% is very mm. high indeed, especially as I believe there's no specific treatment for this disease, right? Yeah, that's right. So there is no vaccine for it either. So it's crucial to avoid getting bitten by mosquitoes to prevent infection. The KDCA advised those planning on visiting Southeast Asian countries to avoid areas with large number of mosquitoes, such as the woods or mountains. It also advised such people to visit the nearest clinic or hospital if they suffer any dengue fever symptoms within two weeks of coming back to the country. Right. While there's no cure for dengue fever, I believe you can treat some of these symptoms, uh, which could increase the chances of you being able to fight off the disease. So uh, do seek out medical help as soon as you suspect you have related symptoms. OK, we'll leave it there for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. And that's all the time we have on this edition of Career 24. As we mentioned on our show yesterday, we are foregoing our weekly segments such as Career Book Club uh, to bring you extra in-depth interviews related to the Itaewon tragedy this week. In the meantime, we have just enough time to remind you that you can always listen to our show on our apps, KBS Kong, KBS World Radio and KBS World Radio On Air. If you're a shortwave listener, you can check the broadcast schedule on the KBS World Radio website. That's world.kbs.co.kr. And to listen to any of our previous shows, you can also download our show as a podcast. You can find that on our KBS World Radio page as well, or on popular podcast apps such as Naver Audio Clip. We'll sign off there. Join us again tomorrow for more of the latest updates and analysis of key stories from Korea. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>